Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's January the 5th, 2022, New Year, but unfortunately, old war in the Ukraine. Um, the news today is that uh, Putin has ordered a 36-hour unilateral ceasefire in Ukraine for the Orthodox Christmas. This has been rejected uh, by Kiev, which they've described as a trivial truce. Um, some of the regional players are getting involved. The uh, the uh, the Turkish uh, politician. Uh, Erdogan is getting involved, uh, telling Putin that there's a need for a ceasefire. Uh, so in a sense, it's a very normal kind of war. Uh, the Moscow Times, which claims to be independent news from Russia, I'm not so sure, claims that Putin is, is signaling a readiness for peace if Kiev seizes our seeds occupied regions. In other words, there's a kind of propaganda war pre-peace talks seem to be going on. Meanwhile, just as he's promising peace and ceasefires, he's deploying, that is Putin, he's deploying a frigate to the Atlantic Ocean armed with hypersonic Zircon cruise missiles. In other words, um, he's got both the iron fist and a glove at the same time, very typical, I guess, of wars. Um, how do we make sense of this. One person who we talked to last year about the situation is one of uh, the world's leading analysts of Vladimir Putin and his Russia. Angela Stent is the author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest, a very highly respected book back from 2019. She works at the Brookings Institute and she is an old hand at making sense of this menace to peace in the world. And she's joining us from Washington, D.C. Uh, Angela, uh, happy uh, happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And I, I would say a peaceful New Year, Angela, but I think that's perhaps a little presumptuous, particularly when it comes to Ukraine. Definitely. I mean, I think you have to see this latest ceasefire proposal as a pretty cynical move by Putin. Uh, first of all, he's making some concessions to the Russian Orthodox uh, patriarch, who's been a great supporter of the war, uh, to show that he cares about uh, Christmas. Secondly, uh, the Ukrainian response, as you said, has been negative. And so he wants to try and expose the Ukrainians as uh, warmongers. Um, and uh, he wants to sort of appeal to the outside world to show that he's reasonable. Um, maybe the Russians won't do anything during that 36-hour uh, ceasefire. Let's see what happens. Uh, they could use it to regroup. Uh, but he's not seriously interested in any peace talks because they're making conditions that the Ukrainians can't accept. They're saying that they have to recognize the annexation of four territories by Russia, none of whom Russia actually uh, controls. They control parts of these territories, but 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 some of which they do not. So I think we, we should take a deep breath and understand that this war is going to continue. That's what Putin said in his New Year's address. Uh, and uh, they're not going to be peace talks anytime soon. How do we, Angela, how do we go go about making sense of all this? We, we did so many shows trying to get into Putin's head. One with the 
the analyst of War and Peace, Chris Blackman from the University of Chicago. He tried to figure out five reasons why Putin went to war. Another with Mark Galliotti, one of your DC colleagues, analyzing mm -hmm. Putin, making sense of him in terms of a 19th century warmonger. Others with Andrew Weiss, uh, who treats him as a kind of accidental czar. Should we be treating Putin? Um, and I can't think of a better word for this, but as a rational actor here, does he know what he's doing? Does he have a plan? Is there something coherent about all this or is he just some sort of a lunatic? Well, I think you you have to treat him as a, as a reasonably rational actor. I mean, he has wanted to relitigate the end of the Cold War since he came to power and probably before that, too, uh, when he had to leave East Germany as a as a KGB agent who was no longer needed. So he doesn't believe that the collapse of the Soviet Union was legitimate. He said so. Uh, and he's trying to reverse that. Uh, and that's been his goal all along. And Ukraine is the key country here uh, to try and take back control of Ukraine, have a government there that's very pro-Russian. And possibly, I mean, that was the goal at the beginning, form a Slavic Union state of Belarus, Russia, Ukraine, and possibly all, also northern Kazakhstan. So he, he's been talking and thinking about these things for a long time. But I do believe that the two years of COVID isolation where he didn't meet with any foreign leaders and he was just surrounded by a very small group of people who reinforced all of his views and his paranoia, I think that contributed towards it. Um, clearly, the conduct of the war has not gone the way that he wanted it to. He was misinformed about the Ukrainians, thinking that they would um, capitulate very quickly and they could, and that Russia could put in a puppet government. So I think there is, he, there is rationality to what he does, but if you if you listen to what he's been saying recently and the way that he's now made this almost into a holy war, you know, uh, invoking religious symbols, you do have to question how much he really is grounded in reality at this moment and understands the situation there. It's funny, though, uh, doesn't it depend when it comes to religious wars, doesn't it depend on their previous positions? I don't remember this, but I remember reading about when Stalin shifted from the Second World War being a communist war to a religious war uh, and calling on all Russians to fight Hitler and everyone treated him as being quite rational. So doesn't it depend on the context? There's nothing necessarily unreasonable or irrational about turning this into a religious war. Most wars, when you scratch the surface, are for better or worse religious wars. Yeah, I, I think the difference, obviously, is that the Soviet Union was invaded by Nazi Germany and was attacked, whereas it's Russia that started this war uh, completely unprovoked. Um, and, you know, Putin has explained it from the beginning by saying that they're denazifying Ukraine, desatanizing it uh, and likening it to the Second World War. Uh, but maybe it's the Second World War in his mind. But in reality, of course, it isn't. So if he's Humpty Dumpty trying to put the Soviet Union back together, he, he must understand and everyone around him must understand that that's not a feasible project. I mean, it's one thing to put pieces of it back, but the whole thing is absurd, isn't it, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. I think he's much less interested in the Central Asian states, for instance. Uh, he's really focused on uh, the, you know, the, the Slavic countries uh, that he believes belong together. Um, and, you know, he's also made some not so veiled threats against Poland. And so that is restoring 
Russian influence there, a sphere of influence, and ensuring that these countries listen to what Moscow says. And for instance, a country like Ukraine gives up its ideas about being integrated into Europe. Um, and so, so that's what he's focused on. He's not focused on reconstructing the whole Soviet Union, uh, also including the South Caucasus states. It's really the, the immediate Western neighbors that he's focused on. We haven't had any of the, the really hardcore American realist IR people on the show, but we've had people, shall we perhaps describe them as soft realists, like Charles Cookchan has been on the show a couple of times back in April of last year. He talked about Putin and this whole issue of the growth of NATO. Does in any way Putin have a point? And when eventually we, I mean, we, the West, Ukraine, Putin, maybe the Chinese come to the peace table, perhaps even the Turks. Does this issue need to be addressed? So this war was not occasioned by NATO or NATO enlargement. I would remind uh, people who are listening to this that when NATO enlarged in the beginning, and even in 2004, uh, Russia didn't really put out many objections to it. NATO is a threat to Putin in as much as if Ukraine had joined NATO, which of course it hasn't, then he would not have been able to reimpose a Russian sphere of influence there. He would not have been able to attack it and put in place a pro-Russian government. So NATO was a threat to him because it thwarts his ambitions uh, to, to restore at least parts of the Soviet Union. Um, but I, I think this is grossly exaggerated, and I think the Russians now use this as an excuse. NATO wasn't threatening Russia. Uh, NATO had no intention of, of invading Russia, all these kinds of things that Putin talks about now. Um, but, but the reason the Russians didn't like NATO enlargement, obviously, is because countries that had been in Russia's sphere of influence or part of the Soviet Union joined, thereby lessening Russia's sway, if you like, over Europe. I'm sure you talk to the, the Biden people, Angela. They probably come to you for advice. Can Ukraine become a, a member of NATO or even the EU without there being a general war? So I think the NATO question has really been put off. I mean, unfortunately, NATO in 2008 um, and this was the result of an argument between the Bush administration that wanted to provide Ukraine with a NATO perspective and Germany and France particularly who didn't. And so there's a phrase in that communique saying Ukraine will join NATO. But actually nothing was done uh, after 2008 to have a plan for how Ukraine might join NATO. And at the present time, there's no enthusiasm in really any NATO country for seeing Ukraine as a, as a member of NATO. So I think that is something that's put off. But on the other hand, even Henry Kissinger, a great realist, has said that once the war is over, Ukraine will be treated as if it were more or less a NATO member in terms of its support by NATO countries. Um, well, that's a pretty strong, I mean, as if, meaning that if the Russians launched another invasion, it would result in a NATO response. So that's, there's ambiguity there. I mean, what the Ukrainians want is security guarantees that would resemble Article 5 of the NATO treaty, which is that if Ukraine were attacked again, they would come to Ukraine's defense. I don't think that any NATO country is actually willing to sign on to that. And therefore, they're trying to think about creative ways of providing some security guarantees to Ukraine. But that fall short of that. And as for EU membership, 
Uh, I mean, at the moment, the Russians have sort of said that, you know, they, they don't object to that. But of course, it will take a very long time, I would think, for Ukraine to fulfill the conditions in the EU acquis where it would be really eligible to, to be a full member. Angela, we had uh, Peter Pomerantsev on the show last week. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. A brilliant course. writer on yeah. propaganda and media in Russia. Again, no great friend of Vladimir Putin. Um, his family is originally from Ukraine. Uh, he argued that the only way to really respond is by arming Ukraine with missiles to hit Russian cities. He believes that there's no other way of bringing Putin to the to the peace table. Does he have a point? I think he does have a point, but I think it's not going to happen. Um, I think that the White House has drawn with the Europeans, I mean, in consultation with the other NATO allies, um, ha has drawn somewhat of a red line there um, in not wanting to furnish the Ukrainians weapons that can actually strike inside Russia. Now, having said that, the Ukrainians obviously have done some strikes inside Russia and also inside the Donbass region just on uh, Monday, this major attack uh, on an army base there. Um, so I think, I, I, and we, and now finally the U.S. is saying and the French are saying they will supply modern Western tanks to Ukraine, and the Poles and others had supplied them with kind of Soviet-era ones. So there, there is more. There are more arms and more sophisticated arms going there, uh, but I think that's that's not going to happen. I mean, I think the only way that this ends, um, where Ukraine isn't destroyed, is either if Ukraine were to have a military victory over Russia, but I think that's still very difficult, or if you have a government in Russia that changes its goals here. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon either. So this is why I think this is going to go on for quite a long time. That's really depressing. You're saying that the only way to get a short-term resolution is either a, a, a Ukrainian victory, which I don't even know what that means, or some sort of coup within Russia itself. So a short, you could have a, a negotiation and you could have a ceasefire signed. Um, but I think we have to remember that Russia has broken every agreement that it signed with independent Ukraine that had to do with its territorial integrity. And there are several of them. And therefore, any if there were negotiations, let's say later on this year, a ceasefire, um, this would the Russians would use this as long as you have the same kind of people in the Kremlin. They would use this, you know, to regroup and then they would attack. Ukraine again, uh, because this is, from their point of view, a long-term process. Can anyone put pressure on Putin or his people, the Chinese, Xi, the Turks, the Indians? I mean, they could, but they won't. I mean, the Chinese, I think, have made it quite clear that um, they're not going to pressure Russia. Um, the Chinese government, even though it's, I think, somewhat appalled by the course of the war now, has supported Russia rhetorically. And they don't want to see, at this point, Putin or people, the Putin regime end, uh, because they don't want to see a, a government coming to power in Russia, um, unimaginable as that seems now, that would seek a better relationship with the United States. The Indians are also, Prime Minister Modi has spoken out against the war, but I don't think they're in a position, nor would they want to actually put pressure on Russia. And I don't think President Erdogan, even though he's been a mediator, uh, is in a position to pressure Russia. I think that's the problem, uh, that there doesn't seem to be any country that is willing uh, to, to put pressure on Russia uh, and force it to the negotiation table. 
has 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 Joe Biden played his cards correctly? Uh, is he doing a good job making sense of this war? I mean, one of his hands at least is tied behind his back. I think that he has done a good job. I mean, I think he they've really worked hard to create and maintain a transatlantic consensus and also with Asian allies like Japan and South Korea, Australia, etc. Um and they have been I mean, the US has been providing um, Ukraine with the lion's share of the military equipment. Now the Europeans are, are stepping up a little bit, but they've set themselves these red lines. And I think one can question, have they been too afraid of escalation um, to, to not uh, take measures like, well, declaring a no-fly zone or supplying Ukraine with, uh, with longer range weapons? Have they been too um, concerned about that. But I think President Biden has made it clear that th these decisions are also consensus decisions with the NATO allies. In other words, the U.S. is also listening to them, and they probably have their own concerns about escalation too. And how has it, Ukraine managed its war? I mean, Zelensky has, of course, become a, a folk hero in the West. He's man of the year on many fronts of 2022. Is he a new kind of leader? Does he know what he's doing? Does he understand that in a way he's perhaps playing with, well, he's obviously playing with fire, but with unimaginable fire? Well, he's a new kind of leader in as much as he's really very savvy about social media. You know, he is, after all, an actor. Uh, he had his own production company, and I think he has very cleverly used social media, his address, nightly addresses to his population, all the, the uh, remote talks that he's given to parliaments around the world. Um, so I think in that sense, he's using modern communication tools quite effectively uh, in a way that clearly President Putin and the people around him are not are not using them. Um, you know, he, he appears to have some very competent military advisors um, and Ukraine has done pretty well now in, in pushing back um, Russia and taking advantage of Russia's battlefield losses. I don't think that was true in the beginning. And that's why the Russians were able to take as much extra territory as they did um, after February the 24th. But I, I think so far, um, he has really been quite an effective leader. Are there two kinds of wars being fought simultaneously on the battlefield? We had the Australian AI expert Toby Walsh on the show a couple of weeks ago. He argued that the Ukrainians are actually waging um, a drone war, the first of its kind, whereas the Russians seem to be operating on almost 19th century or certainly early 20th century military principles. Um, how important in your view is, quote unquote, the drone war? I mean, I asked Peter that and he said, well, when he was in Kiev, uh, the skies were dotted with Russian drones. So clearly it's not just a Ukrainian strategy. Well, I think it's a drone war, but it's both sides. And the Russians are getting all these drones from the Iranians now. So they are their their warfare their, is a little becoming a little. Which little, doesn't necessarily. I'm not sure whether one one would would want to rely on Iranian technology for a 21st century war. Would one? No, but the you know the Iranian drones have been effective in causing damage. You know, this in this Russian campaign now to, to damage the civilian infrastructure. You know, deprive the Ukrainians of heat, electricity, water, etc. I think um, you know they they haven't been totally ineffective. But what we see also is a really um, slapdash, if you like, uh, Russian military organization. I mean, this attack on Monday um, in the uh, in the barracks there 
they first of all the soldiers were allowed were using their cell phones so it was very easy for the yeah and then the russian they they housed all of these men in very close quarters right next to an ammunition depot so that of course when bombs are dropped you know it caused probably hundreds of casualties um and so one really does wonder um you know how focused the russian military is and and what their strategy is if they're uh, putting their soldiers at such risk Angela, uh, Peter Pomerantsev, in his own inimical way, poo-pooed the idea that Putin would ever consider using nuclear weapons. Um, would you agree with him? Should, is this something that we shouldn't really concern ourselves with? Yeah, I think we've exaggerated the threat, and that's precisely what he wants us to do. If everyone is worried about World War III, then they're going to be very careful about what they do. You cannot dismiss it completely and say he would never use them. It comes back to your question about how rational he is. But detonating a tactical nuclear weapon, you're breaking a 77-year taboo. And it, I'm not sure what it gets Russia. It's not going to get it more territory. And even countries like China and India have been quite explicit uh, that this really would be unacceptable. So uh, I think probably people are exaggerating this danger. Uh, but on the other hand, Russia does have thousands of nuclear warheads and you cannot completely dismiss it. Angela, the other big story today, of course, um, is the civil war within the Republican Party. Uh, we did a show last year with Marie Yovanovitch. Mm -hmm. I'm sure she's a friend of yours about the relationship and the connection between Trump and Putin. Um, do you, and I'm not sure whether you saw it in the first place, but is there some sort of odd symbolic connection between the American Republican Party, particularly the right of that Republican Party, which tends towards isolationism and Putin and his people and his world? Well, there certainly appears to be in the, the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. I don't watch Tucker Carlson, but I occasionally read some of the things that he says. This is a man who praises Putin, uh, condemns and ridicules Zelensky um, and says, you know, Russia is this great country and why should we care about these shabby Ukrainians? And I think there's definitely a wing uh, of the, the conservative Republicans that admire Putin. And by the way, they admire him because of all these draconian uh, laws about the LGBTQ community because of mm. his alleged commitment to traditional family values. So there's some of that there too. Um, but I think it's all, and it's of course a complete reversal. Traditionally, the Republicans, at least in the Cold War period, uh, were you know much more hawkish on the Soviet Union than some of the Democrats were. But you, you've had a complete reversal of that now. Um, there are not that many of those people were elected to Congress, but I think there are enough of them that we're clearly going to see more of a debate this year, if we ever get a speaker, and if the Congress ever functions, uh, we're going to see more of a debate about how much we should be supporting Ukraine. As I said, uh, Angela, you're the author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the rest. Uh, you wrote that before this war. We've done a lot of shows on what we might think of as Putin's world. Uh, one, for example, with Catherine Belton, who has done a lot of remarkably brave and incisive work on what she calls KGB capitalism. Has this war essentially destroyed, for however Putin comes out of this, has, has this war destroyed Putin's world? 
Oh, I think it's gone a long way to destroying it. I mean, uh, Russia will be, it's deglobalizing, it's demodernizing. It's not going to come out of this as a greater power. It will be a diminished power. Uh, it was an energy superpower. That's not happening. I mean, uh, now uh, it, it can't wield that uh, leverage anymore with its energy exports. So uh, Putin has not only destroyed Ukraine or trying to destroy it, but he's destroyed a lot of what he, in fact, Russia achieved under his presidency before this war with the higher growth rates, with Russia integrated the global economy, with it being having a seat at all the major, uh, you know, discussions, uh, international discussion issues. And that's all going to be lessened uh, when this war is over, even though he will still have the support of what people like to call the global south. China, India, you know, many countries in the Which Middle East. Which is not East. exactly inconsiderable, Angela. No, no, it isn't. And in population terms, the global South is larger than the collective West. In income and, and economic uh, clout terms, it's less. But no, he will not emerge from this isolated or a pariah. Uh, which is something that President Biden said at the beginning, but still Russia will be a weaker country. It's ironic. You talked about him wanting to put the Soviet Union back together in an odd kind of way he has, maybe not in the way he intended, but certainly Russian economics and Russian society is becoming more and more Sovietized. Finally, Andrew, I'm not sure this was a particularly cheerful conversation, but you are a realist in the best sense of the word. What's the best that we can hope for in 2023, given the reality of the war today in on January 5th? I mean, the best would be, obviously, if, but I don't know how likely this is, you know, if Putin were willing um, to understand that he's not going to achieve the goals that he wanted to, and he won't. Uh, anytime soon, uh, uh, and that he would, that Russia would be willing uh, to sit down with Ukraine and come to an agreement where, you know, Ukraine retains its territorial integrity, its sovereignty. I mean, there might be, uh, there would be some territorial negotiations there, um, but that would mean that he would have to jettison this idea that he now has, that Ukraine has to recognize the annexation of all these territories. I mean, that. so if that were possible, then you could get some kind of a negotiated settlement. That would be, uh, you know, and, and then, of course, you, you have the tremendous task of reconstructing Ukraine, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Um, that, that would be, uh, you know, not a bad scenario for this year, but uh, I'm not sure how likely that is. And of course, there's no Marshall Plan this time around. Um... Given, as you've suggested, that's the best possible scenario, and it's probably not realistic. Um, what is more realistic if, if Putin doesn't, in at least in our mind, come to his senses? Well, so I think what could happen is there could be, and the Ukrainians believe there will be a new Russian offensive uh, in the spring with these newly mobilized soldiers. We don't know how effective that will be. Um, and so you will have, you know, the fighting will continue. Um, and you know, maybe there'll be another cease, you know, brief ceasefire. That's not clear either. Otherwise, I think the fighting is going to continue until either, you know, people in Europe uh, just 
you know, want, want to get beyond the, the impact of the sanctions on their own economies, that they're tired of, of all of this support for Ukraine. You could have the same thing in the United States. You could get a weakening of the transatlantic commitment to supporting Ukraine. And in that case, of course, that would not go well for Ukraine. And that, that is a possibility. That's what Putin's hoping for. He's hoping that everyone's going to crack and that, you know, he'll sit it out and tough it out. And then in the end, Russia will be able to prevail. So I think this, this will be a crucial year uh, to see whether this transatlantic uh, coalition holds together. But you think he would be willing to accept a, a, a rump state, a Ukrainian rump state, without the territories that he's already seized? He might be. I mean, there would obviously be bargaining there. He might be. He would be willing possibly to accept a Ukrainian rump state for the time being. But I think if, you know, if he runs for re-election, as it looks like he might next year, uh, and if he's still in power, he's not going to give up on his goal of subjugating Ukraine. This one's going to run and run, Angela. Is it going to outrun us? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> we'll have to see. Excellent. 